0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 4, the last audio. I covered Jesus' call of four of his apostles by the seaside with the miraculous draft of fish. That would be Peter and Andrew, James and John. This is at Capernaum. He's just getting ready to start his Capernaum ministry. Just having come up from his Judean and Perean ministry at the very beginning, gone through Samaria up to Capernaum, took a little side trip to Nazareth, got rejected. He's back up at Capernaum. The next audio, we're going to look at Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law's fever at that house in Capernaum. So this is where we are at Capernaum, in the house of Peter. Or actually, we're not at the house of Peter right now. We're going to be, but that's where they were stationed. Right now, we're in a synagogue, and Jesus is going to cast out a demon on the Sabbath. So this is a Sabbath day controversy. I've already done this when I discussed Mark chapter 1-22. through 20, Through twenty-eight, which is almost a perfect parallel passage. So I'm going to splice in my earlier audio on Mark 1, 21 through 28, and that'll take care of verses 31 through 37 and Luke 4. Here we go. Now we're going to take Jesus into his first teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. This is not recorded in Matthew. There is a parallel passage in Luke, which tracks pretty much Mark. We'll go to Luke when necessary if we need to pick up a detail or two. Capernaum is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's there today. The archaeologists have found it. They found a nice synagogue in there. I think they say they think they found Peter's home. I don't remember the details, but it's worth going to if you're ever on a tour to Israel. It's interesting they, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They know where Bethlehem is. Maybe not the exact spot where Jesus was born, but they know the city. Nazareth was where Jesus grew up. That's there. You can go see it. And Capernaum is where he established his first uh, ministry headquarters at the home of Peter and Andrew, and that's there too. I think it took them a while to find Capernaum. I think it was found, I forgot when, but it wasn't too long ago. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. Of course, this is typical. Ra- visiting rabbis would come and teach in the synagogue. They would sit, and everybody else would listen to him. Somebody has made the point that Jesus' ministry consisted of three basic things, teaching, preaching, and healing teaching about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, asking people to enter it, and then healing people. Now, Capernaum is in Galilee, which John Gill says, quote, was a country mean and despicable, inhabited by persons poor, illiterate, vile, and wicked. It's a very populous area, John Gill says. There were 240 cities and towns besides smaller villages, according to Josephus. Jesus went there publicly and publicly taught in the synagogues. He didn't creep into private houses as like the Pharisees and later the false apostles did, according to, to John Gill. He went publicly to teach. Now let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. That means the people in the synagogue at Capernaum. They were astonished at his teaching because, unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Now what does that mean, as having authority? He was saying this is where it is. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm announcing to you if it's not Rabbi X said this and Rabbi Y said this and Rabbi Z he disagreed. He sort of split the middle and I don't know what I think the answer is, but I sort of lean to Rabbi X. No, he didn't teach that way. He says, This is the way it is. This is what this is the revealed will of God. So that's the first time the people were astonished. They were astonished later at his healing. And we're going to see a demon exorcism in a minute. But the teaching first astonished them. Now this word astonished shows up a lot in Mark. So let's look at this to show the impact that Jesus had on the people at just in the book of Mark. Mark 2.12. Immediately he got up, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This was the man healed when he was let down through the roof, a paralytic. Mark five verse twenty. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. That was the gathering demoniac that was healed. Mark 5.42. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old, and they were utterly astounded, astounded, amazed, astounded mark six two when the sabbath came he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished where did this man get these things they said what is this wisdom given to him and how are these miracles performed by his hands so you see the teaching and the miracles were the two things that amazed the crowds mark six verse fifty one then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded. Mark 7, verse 37, they were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes deaf people hear and people unable to speak, talk. Mark ten twenty-six. so they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? That was, <laughs> that was a teaching point about the difficulty of getting saved mark 11 verse 18 then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching mark 15:5. but jesus still did not answer anything so Pilate was amazed jesus was an amazing historical figure he amazed people he was an amazing so these people will say well he was just a good teacher <laughs> oh no Anybody that says that is either an ignorant fool or be a liberal or probably see both. Teachers don't do this. Teachers do not have that kind of effect on people. He, As C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, a lord. Only a lunatic would go around saying the stuff he did and doing the stuff he did. That amazed people so much with so much authority. He basically claimed to be God. That's why they killed him because they knew he was claiming to be God. People that claim to be God usually end up in an insane asylum. They don't end up being the head of a religion of over a billion people that people will die for. This idea of having authority is mentioned again in another place in Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Again, the scribes were just busy quoting other authorities. Jesus was saying, I have authority. We go down to verse 23 in Mark chapter 1. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. Of course, an unclean spirit is a demon. He cried out. That's the demon, not the man. the man. The unclean spirit cried out. What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Us, of course, refers to the fact there was more than one demon in there. One, of them, one demon was speaking for the others, the other or the others. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God luke chapter 4 verses 33 as i said this is there's a parallel passage in luke which tracks mark pretty closely but luke verse chapter 4 verse 33 says in the synagogue there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit so the word demon is added there to show us that the that an unclean spirit is a demonic spirit john gill points out that he did not have an unclean sinful heart he had an unclean spirit there is a difference you know we're sinners that's the flesh And then we also sometimes have demons, and since both the flesh and the demons produce the same rotten fruit, sometimes it's hard to distinguish the two. I know there are people in the charismatic movement go around; they find a demon under every chair. And then there are some people in the cessationist camp who act like demons don't do a darn thing to anybody, and they wouldn't cast out a demon if you paid them a million dollars, because they wouldn't know—they don't even acknowledge that they exist hardly. And if they do acknowledge that demonic. Activity exists. They are in the unpleasant position of saying, yeah, the demons can, can, can possess people, but Jesus can't cast them out. This is why I think cessationism is, a, is bunkum. The adjective unclean is used about 20 times in the Gospels to describe demons, according to James Fawcett and Brown. Now, why did the demon say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God? The demon may have done that according to a certain occult belief that using a person's precise name gave control over him. That's my NIV Study Bible says that. John Gill says the demon may have been trying to flatter Jesus to save himself. Oh, you holy one of God, how about let me go? Yeah, that John Gill really—he that guy's the most creative, imaginative guy, but he's usually wrong in my opinion about a lot of things because he's too creative. I think he's, i think the NIV Study Bible is probably right there. Is that? The demon's trying to control Jesus by calling him the Holy One of God. And that, by the way, is probably why Jesus constantly told the demons to shut up. He wasn't going to listen to that nonsense. The demon probably got this expression from Psalm 16, verse 10, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, the demon said, have you come to destroy us? The answer was that was not yet. He was just casting them out now. Their actual destruction is going to come at the great white throne judgment when they were going to be toast. They were going to be carried into the lake of fire, and that was it. But Revelation 20 says the demonic power is bound. Jesus said, I saw Satan like fall like lightning from heaven. He was destroying their power if he was not destroying their existence. They're eventually going to be completely annihilated. This illustrates a principle is that the kingdom of God progresses in a... The kingdom of God doesn't happen all at once. There's a progression involved. Our sanctification doesn't happen that way. The ending of demons doesn't have, happen that way. But more and more and more, Jesus' power will manifest itself, and the more, the better. Now, because the man was in the synagogue, he must have had lucid intervals, or they wouldn't have let him in there. He probably got into the synagogue, you heard Jesus teaching, and this is what happens when demons hear the teaching of Jesus. They hear that name, Jesus, and they go nuts. They can't stand it. So I suspect that Jesus' presence stirred that demon up. And the question they asked Jesus, what have we to do with you? The answer to that was nothing. Jesus didn't have anything to do with demons. The demons realized the distinction between holiness, which was Jesus, and filth, which was themselves. Now, the demons called Jesus the Nazarene. Now, that was meant by the demon as a term of contempt, according to Jameson and Brown, because Nazareth was a no-account place. If you go to Nazareth today, I'm telling you, I don't want to offend anybody that lives there, but my gosh, it's still sort of a shabby-looking place. But the people later used the term Nazarene as a term of honor, luke 18 verse 37 jesus the nazarene is passing by they told him i think that was one of the blind guys on the side of the road jesus the nazarene is if it's not already at least it's neutral it's not negative mark 16 verse 6 don't be alarmed he told them you're looking for jesus the nazarene who was crucified he has been resurrected he is not here see the place where they put him that's the angel speaking to the women at the tomb so obviously nazarene is not used in a pejorative sense there Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. This is Peter at his Pentecostal sermon saying Jesus the Nazarene. So Nazarene was not not always a term of opprobrium. Sometimes it was just a term showing where Jesus was from, where he grew up. But the demon, he was probably trying to run Jesus down, unless he was trying to flatter Jesus, like John Gill says, in order to get Jesus to let him loose. But I don't think so. All right, well, let's see what Jesus does here in verse 25 and 26 in Mark chapter 1. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. The NIV study Bible says that be quiet literally means be muzzled. Be muzzled and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. Quite an interesting synagogue meeting on that Sabbath day when you see somebody writhing around looking like an epileptic, as sometimes happens when demons get cast out of people. I've heard enough demon stories and seen enough demon stuff to to know that that doesn't surprise me in the least. The Demons don't come out easily. They they fight on the way out, apparently. I don't know why, but they do. Now, although the man was convulsed as the demon came out, the demon did not hurt him. And we go to Luke chapter 4 to our parallel in Luke. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all and that's nice i remember one time i was in china and this young man and i don't know if this was a demon or not i suspect it was nobody ever told me but he, we, he was just listening to us we were i don't know if we were teaching or just sharing fellowshipping with some christian church leaders in some country place i forgot where it was and that that young man was sitting there and all of a sudden he jumps up runs out and lands right into a shallow well that was out there and they all had to come get him, and he was acting demon-possessed. I'm pretty sure it was. Because you talk about Jesus, it stirs demons up. What I remember is the demon just threw him down, threw him into the well. If it was a demon, or he could have been him acting foolish. I don't know. Now, why did Jesus say, be quiet? Well, that's because he didn't want to hear the demon talk. He didn't. And this is something I had to learn. I, I One time I was involved. The first time I ever encountered somebody that was demon-possessed, I felt like I had to argue with the demon. It was quite embarrassing later when I realized what had happened there was this girl who I assumed was a Christian I found out later she was one of these fake Christians she said she was a Christian and that demon was saying that demon was saying she's mine she's mine and I would say no she's not she belongs to Jesus of Nazareth by the blood of Jesus come out of her no she's mine it turns out she was his because she was not saved but nonetheless we got that demon under control that was quite a story and by the way Let's go back and read this. I meant to do this. Let's read what the demon said here, and let's read how the demon probably sounded, sound, because I've heard them speak. They're not pleasant. And I read it like, what do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? No, that's not how the demon talked. This is what he said. What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I bet you dollars to notice that's what it sounded like. Like I said this was probably an exciting synagogue meeting that Saturday. We also know from the parallel passage in Luke that the demon threw the the demon threw the demoniac down on the ground because Luke 4:35 that verse I just read, and throwing him down before them, so the demon threw him down on the ground, made him convulse. Mark doesn't give the details. Mark chapter 1 verse 27. Then they were all amazed. There's that amazing thing again. So they began to argue with one another, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They were already impressed by the authority of his teaching, and Jesus backed up the authority of his teaching by casting out a demon. So that's the first time they'd seen that. This time the authority had something added to it. Mark chapter 1, verse 28. News about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Jesus made a big first impression in Galilee. Now the entire vicinity of Galilee, where is that? All around within Galilee or all Galilee in addition to the provinces all around Galilee. In other words, all around in Galilee or north of Galilee. And we can look at Matthew 4.23 and see this. Jesus was going all over Galilee and the NIV has Syria, which is, of course, north of Galilee and a different, was outside of Israel. Jesus was going all over Syria teaching in their synagogues. some people think, anyway. And here we, in Matthew 4:25 we have this. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in present-day Jordan, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan, of course, is Perea on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, all the way down from Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So there's lots of people coming to see Jesus now in Capernaum. It's 29, Mark chapter 1. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. All right, that's the end of the Saturday Sabbath meeting in the synagogue where they cast out the demoniac. And that is also the end of my splice of the audio covering Mark 1, 21 through 28. So now we proceed to cover Luke 4, 38 through 41, which is the story of... The healing of Peter's mother-in-law by Jesus. We'll I'll splice in my discussion of Mark one twenty-nine through thirty-four, which is almost an exact parallel, and that discussion also includes three or four, uh, four verses from Matthew eight, which will cover this story pretty good. So the splice begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. I'm in Mark chapter one. We're near the end of the chapter. Jesus has just finished healing a demoniac at a Sabbath meeting in the synagogue, and he's gone back to his base of operations in Andrew and Simon Peter's house at Capernaum. We're going to look at Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, doing a bunch of other healings, and then, and then we're going to talk about the first tour of Galilee as Jesus prepares his disciples to spread the word, spread the gospel. So let's start with Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And we will read from verse 29 to verse 30. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her once. Now, this house was in Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. This becomes Jesus' base of operations in Galilee. Peter lived in that house with Andrew, his brother, as we read here in Mark. Verse 29, it says it's Simon and Andrew's house. James and John were then brought along with them into the house. Now, they all went there to the house, probably to eat the customary meal, which was eaten after the synagogue service, which we've just described in the previous audio and the previous few verses of Mark, when Jesus cast out the demoniac in the synagogue service. I don't know whether this is Friday night or sometime during Saturday. I'm going to assume it was Saturday sometime, and they ate the meal in the house now, this house there in Capernaum was Simon and Andrew's. It was not their, Simon and Andrew's, native childhood home. Childhood home. They were both from Bethsaida, which is on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. We learn that from John 144. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Now, this fever that Simon's mother-in-law was experiencing, was it probably put her in danger of her life because we read in Luke 4, verse 38, parallel passage. After he left the synagogue, he, Jesus, entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. So we have that extra detail from Luke. It was a high fever. And of course, a high fever might have been so high that it put her in danger of her life. Now, these disciples going into the house, they went and told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law fever. Why? Because they had just seen Jesus do a miracle casting out that demon in the synagogue. They probably figured, well, if he did that, he can heal Peter's mother-in-law. No trouble. It's an interesting point, by the way. It's Peter's mother-in-law, not his mother. That That means it was Peter's wife's mother, which the first pope was married. The Catholics love to talk about Peter being the first pope. The pope was married. And I'm telling you, given the current scandalous and pathetic situation of the Catholic Church today, it would have been a lot better... If the rest of the popes had been married, too, to control their lasificious sex drive, the present pope we have now has done nothing but cover up the scandal. And I noticed by reading the press, I've been reading a lot of Catholic commentators on the situation, they're disgusted with it. He's done nothing but tried to cover it up, the current pope. Well, it seems to me that if a Catholic is faced with that situation, do the intelligent thing and leave the Catholic Church. But anyway, anti-Catholic propaganda here for polemics. Notice that Peter's mother-in-law immediately got up and started to serve them, which means that the fever was completely gone, because usually you're kind of wiped out if you get, knocked, get, get over a fever. But she was completely healed. When she got up, she started working. Jesus is said to have touched her when he healed her. This is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. It seems that when Jesus healed people, he liked to touch those who he healed. Sometimes he just healed with the word. Like when he healed the centurion's servant right about this time as a matter of fact, from afar, but sometimes he liked to touch the people he healed now that Simon's mother Peter's mother-in-law has been healed. Now we see Jesus healing a whole lot of other people in Galilee. When evening came, we continue in, in verse 32 in Mark chapter 1. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Why was it after the sun had set? Because the Jews back then had this idea, taught by the rabbis, that healing should not be done on the Sabbath. When the sun had set, of course, that's the end of the Sabbath day, according to the Jewish reckoning of days. People wouldn't bring people to be healed on the Sabbath because of the rabbinic laws against healing on the Sabbath. We see this attitude in a passage that's not referring to the same event, but it illustrates the point in Luke chapter 13, verse 14. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done, therefore come on these days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day, where <laughs> you're sick and miserable and can get healed on the Sabbath, well, don't do it. According to idiotic, rabbinic attitude toward healing on the Sabbath and, and stupid ideas toward the Sabbath. Now, I will point out that Jesus had just exercised a demon on the Sabbath, and the synagogue officials didn't object. And I wonder why that is. I think it's because it happened all at once. The demon went crazy in the service. They didn't have time to rebuke Jesus, and things were out of hand, and they were glad to get all the help they could to get things under control. That's what I suspect. They didn't say anything. Well, anyway, this is Saturday night. Sun had set. Luke 4, chapter four verse forty said, "When the sun was setting, when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone's diseases, I'm not going to worry about the was it dark when evening came or the sun was setting. That's close enough, unless you want to be extremely picky about trying to find contradictions in scriptures. Looking at the parallel passage in Luke. Chapter 4, verse 40 and 41, we see that all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases were brought him all. And he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. People like to debate, I think, in the healing controversy, does Jesus heal everybody? Well, he healed everybody who was brought, I believe. Now, all can mean each and every, or it can mean many. You can't really prove it from the Greek, so I'm not going to try to prove anything here. But let's just say this. At the very least, Jesus healed a whole heap of people. And when he did so, he fulfilled what was spoken through prophet Isaiah, as Matthew 8, verse 17 tells us. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So right there, that passage which evangelicals love to fulfill only in our spiritual healing, which of course it does include that, but they never include the physical healing, despite the fact that Jesus quoted that verse when he healed sick people. But I know well, we're not supposed to do that today because Jesus works back then, and but he doesn't work today. You're cessationist and all that's over with. You just have to rationally rationate. or We've got to study the scripture and figure it out from a distance. We've got to be deists. God's up there in the sky. He's taking care of everything, but he can't work down here today and heal people. Oh, no. Unless, of course, he does it through a doctor, indirectly, like a deist God. But anyway, why did Jesus not allow those demons to speak? Let's read Mark 1, 33-34. The whole town was assembled at the door. It's a lot of people. It's at the door, a door of their house in Capernaum. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. I just talked about how many did he heal. Uh, Luke says he laid hands on each of them and cured them. And Matthew says he drove out the spirits of the world and healed all who were sick. So I'm not going to... Be too tight on that, but he healed a lot of people, cured them. Now, in verse verse 34, it says, or the end of verse 34, it says, He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Luke chapter 4, verse 41 says, Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. Now, the question is, is why did Jesus not allow those demons to speak? Well, here's some possible reasons. First, the demons' proclamations might rouse people to prematurely proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This would have gotten Jesus killed prematurely before he had a chance to train his disciples. The demons are shouting out, you're the son of God, you're the son of God. And people say, well, he's the son of God. Even the demons know it. And that next thing you know, you've got a messianic movement. And Jesus has got big time trouble with the Pharisees. He's got three and a half, about three more years to go before it's his time to be killed. Another possible reason why he would not allow the demons to speak is because when Jesus later claimed to be the Messiah, the Pharisees could could say, yeah, you're the Messiah. That's just what demons said. So you're in league with the demons. You're casting out devils by Beelzebub. Jesus didn't want to rely on the testimony of demons. That's an interesting idea. But at any rate, he shut the demons down. There's another reason, too, why he might not have wanted them to speak is because there was an ancient belief that if you named the name of someone, you had power over them, like Noah named the animals and... These people, these demons were trying to get power over Jesus. They were saying, you are the son of God. In other words, I've got your name. I've got your number. We say, I've got your number. They say, I've got your name. But he says, I will not allow you to speak because you don't have power over. Why did the whole town, as Mark says, come to see Jesus at his door in Capernaum? Well, they'd already seen the exorcism in the synagogue. And so they said, well, let's go see some more healings. We're sick. We're hurting. let's, Let's go. Remember that this is a time when there are no hospitals. There are no doctors. I mean, they might be. I don't know what you would call somebody who practiced the healing arts 2,000 years ago, but I guarantee you they weren't very advanced. So these people were hurting, and they were more than anxious to have Jesus heal them. All right, now I'm back from that splice of Mark, chapter 1, ending in verse 34, where we were dealing with Luke. Chapter 4, ending with verse 41, which dealt with the healing of Peter's mother in law's fever. Now we're going to finish up Luke chapter 4, verses 42, 43, and 44. Robertson calls this section the first tour of Galilee with the four fishermen that's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And to discuss this, I'm going to splice in an audio I did on Mark 1 35 through 39, which covers exactly the same thing. It's pretty close. And that audio will also include some information from Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25, a parallel passage. So, that splice begins now. Now we move to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and he was praying there. Now, Robinson begins this section by calling it the first tour of Galilee with the four fishermen. The four fishermen being Simon and Andrew, Simon Peter and Andrew, and James and John, sons sons of Zebedee. So, let's get ready for this first missionary tour. First of all, it was very early in the morning when he got up, while it was still dark. Remember now, he had been in the synagogue teaching the day before. He had been healing Saturday night, tons of people that were camped outside of his door. He went to bed and got up before dawn and headed out. He went to a deserted place. Why? Because the people were clamoring all the way around, and they were going to harassing to death and he needed to get away to pray application point is don't let people that you're ministering to get in the way of your praying because you will end up hurting them and hurting yourself as well so he takes out and he starts to pray in this deserted place now here's some speculations as to what he was praying about he could have been praying for the recently chosen disciples he could have been praying about for the proper establishment and prosperity of his gospel. John Gills remember, he's about to perform his first preaching and healing circuit, so this is a good time to be praying about that. Let me ask here a sort of a stupid question, but it's a question that one might ask. Why would the Son of God need to pray for anything since he was God? Adam Clark says the answer is to be a pattern for, for Christians. But I would also point out that Jesus was operating in many cases as a human being relying on God. And that's why he prayed all the time. And it is a perfect example. Now, retiring to the desert to pray was a common occupation of Jesus. It was a pattern in the Scripture. I'm going to give you some other examples in Luke and another one in Mark. Luke 5, verse 16, Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Luke 6, often withdrew, not just once. Luke 6:12. During those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. Luke nine eighteen, while he was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? While he was praying in private, Luke 9, verses 28 through 29, about eight days after these words, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark six forty six. and he said goodbye to them. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. So there we see Jesus praying alone in the desert. Now, assuming Robertson's harmony is right. Robertson says we can go back to Matthew 4.25 and see who these crowds were that were keeping Jesus up at night and keeping him from praying. Matthew 4.25 says this, Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, those are the ten cities to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, which is east of the Jordan. So everybody is coming out to hear Jesus preach. Moving on to Mark 1, verses 36 through 37, we read this. Simon and his companions were searching for him. Jesus is headed out to the desert place to pray. Simon and his companions, which were probably his brother Andrew and James and John, the son of Zebedee. NIV study Bible adds Philip. But anyway, we got these four at least. Let's just say Simon and Andrew, James and John, they go out looking for him. They found him and said, everybody's looking for you. Now, I am going to try to reconcile that with Luke chapter 442 which says, when it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. I'm going to assume that the disciples found Jesus before the crowds did. What probably happened is the crowds that morning, that Sunday morning, probably went to Peter's house first looking for Jesus. They discovered that Peter and his friends had gone to search for Jesus. So the crowds followed the four disciples, into the wilderness looking for Jesus. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, that makes sense to me. And so we see Jesus being harassed terribly by his own disciples, by the crowds as he's trying to get along with God. So we move to Mark chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. And he, Jesus said to them, that's Peter, And uh, Andrew and James and John, he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. And thus we have what Robertson calls the first tour, the four fishermen, Simon and Andrew, James and John, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. In other words, this is why I've come from heaven down to earth is to preach the gospel. So he went out into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. So this is the first preaching tour in Galilee. And the NIV Study Bible says, apparently there seems to be three tours of Galilee. This agrees with Robertson. Again, this is questionable. People debate over this. But I'm going to assume there were three tours of Galilee. Mark simply says that Jesus said to the disciples, let's go so I can preach. Luke adds some more detail. Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. Of course, good news is gospel. I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. New kingdoms being established. This is the first use of the phrase kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. It occurs over 30 times in Luke, according to my NIV study Bible. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am back from my splice of my discussion of the parallel passages in Mark of this first mission journey in Capernaum, missionary tour of the four fishermen, Peter, James, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John. So we're finished with Luke chapter 4 now. I hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up chapter 5 in the next audio. We'll see you then.